We're in uh, a short series on the first seven chapters of 1 Samuel. So if you want to turn there, we are in chapter 6 and just a little bit of chapter 7 this morning. If you need a Bible, throw your hand in the air and someone will bring one to you. If not, you turn, click, swipe, tap, whatever you do to get to 1 Samuel. If you have one of these Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 6 is on page 148. And we're going to start what looks like in the middle of a paragraph, but I don't think it is. We're going to start in verse 13. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which there were golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, and one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And of whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yarim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it to you. And the men of Kiriath-Yarim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son, Eliasar, to have charge of the ark of the Lord. That's probably a bit of a strange story, especially if you're just joining us this morning and and you haven't been reading along with us, uh, which is a reminder that we do have uh, sermon cards in the back so you can see what we're going to be preaching on going forward so you can be reading with us and we'll have new ones coming out next week for for the spring. Uh, But this passage in particular falls directly on the heels of what we looked at two weeks ago, uh, which was chapter 5, verses 1, verse 1 through chapter 6, verse 12. And we saw there the Israelites, we've kind of been this continuous story, the Israelites were unable to defeat the Philistines in battle because they had abandoned God. And, and, And more so than that they had abandoned God, the reality was that God himself, Yahweh, had abandoned them. And yet he defeated the Philistines on his own. The Philistines captured the Ark at this battle. Uh, They take the Ark of the Covenant. They set it up in the temple of their god, Dagon. And Dagon is forced to bow down before Yahweh. And this causes diseases to break out in the Philistines. In panic, they send it from city to city, trying to get rid of this Ark that they have identified as the cause of their problems. And what they finally decided to do was to get rid of it, send it back to Israel. If it was Israel's God who was ravaging them, then what they would do is they put the ark on 
a cart, and they'd tie that cart to a couple cows that had never pulled a load before. Not only that, but these cows had children at home, baby calves at home that had not been weaned yet, so these calves are, are lowing and bellowing for milk in their ears. They've never had a burden, they've never walked a path, and they said, if this, these cows find the way back to Israel, we'll know that this was Israel's God. Lo and behold, that's exactly what happened. And these cows make their way back to a little border town called Beth Shemesh. And they had sent away the ark with this, this guilt offering, these, this strange thing, five golden mice and five golden tumors, because the disease that was ravaging them was causing lumps, which is, we've said some scholars think may have been some version of the bubonic plague, because we're connecting the, the, the rats or mice and the fleas that would have been on them with these bulbous lumps that they are incurring, but we don't know. And, and so they, they send it away that the disease goes away with the ark, and they send little golden lumps, I guess, and golden mice along with them. As we come to the end of chapter 6 and the beginning of chapter 7, we have the Israelite response to that activity. The Israelites see the ark come into Beth Shemesh, and we have their response, which takes place in three quick parts. Um, so we're gonna, we're gonna, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the story, make sure we understand what's going on in the story, and then we're going to look at, what, okay, what is the big picture here, and then what does it have to say for us? That's kind of my, my brief outline. We come to the end of 6 and into the beginning of 7, we have the Israelite response. The Israelite response to seeing the ark show up unaccompanied except by two milk cows. I think it was two, but a number of milk cows into the border town of Beth Shemesh. And the first part of this little episode, we have from the Israelite perspective, the ark, the ark doesn't just come by Yahweh's power to Beth Shemesh, but specifically to the field of Joshua. And we really don't know anything about Joshua, so it's just an interesting historical footnote, I guess. The kind of footnote that you wouldn't include unless Joshua was a real person that a long time ago many people would have known and been familiar with. For us, it's just an interesting note that there was a Joshua who lived in Beth Shemesh about 3,000 years ago, and this Joshua owned a field. And apparently, also in this field was a, a large stone. And that's going to be important in a moment. But a little background on Beth Shemesh generally. It's a Levitical city. And what, what that means is when the Israelites entered the land of Canaan, the land of Palestine, it was divvied up to 11 tribes, with Joseph's tribe getting a double share. The 12th tribe, Levi, didn't receive a large tract of land because they were supposed to be the priests and the other servants in the house of God, God's tabernacle, and then later in the temple. So they would have unique privileges with respect to that, but they wouldn't have a chunk of land of their own. But they did have to live somewhere, so God gave them cities throughout Israel's territory. And Beth Shemesh was one of those cities. And so we can expect that most of the people living in Beth Shemesh are probably Levites. They're descendants of Levi. They are people who should have been caring for the tabernacle, caring for the ark, caring for the other things that went into the tabernacle. So if anybody knows what to do in this situation, it's them. God had brought the ark to the appropriate caretakers. It's the wheat harvest. So it's apparently late spring or early summer. That's my understanding of the Israelite growing season for wheat. Um, the ark has been gone seven months, so surely most of Israel, especially the Levites, have heard the news by this point. They've heard that the ark's been taken. They've heard the ark is gone. 
So you kind of put yourself in their shoes for a second. If you're a Levite, you've been raised your entire life. And you've maybe never seen the ark in your life yet, but you've heard descriptions. You know it's important. You know that your family's life is built around this because your family's life and your sustenance and your, and your income and your livelihood is dependent upon serving in the temple. But you've probably never seen the ark yourself. You know that it's a box. You know that it's shiny. And as this thing approaches, maybe around a bend off in the distance, it becomes clear that it's gold and it's ornately decorated and it becomes clear to you that this, in fact, is the ark that's been missing for seven months. You see the winged cherubim stretched out across the top of the box. At once, it would have been a point of religious significance and civic pride and also familial livelihood. And you can imagine the rejoicing would have been tremendous. And they did what you might expect faithful Israelites to do. They offered a sacrifice. The cart's broken up. It's used for firewood. Uh, The stone would have made a great altar. Um, God had always said that he would make his ark come come to rest in the place that he had chosen. So apparently this was the place he had chosen in this moment. The one big stipulation on altars in the Old Testament is they had to be made of uncut stone. God didn't want anything that had been corrupted by human hands. And this one large stone, I guess, would have been perfect for a sacrifice. And the cows became the sacrifice. So they're using everything. Now, that, however, is not quite right. There's a first note that something is not quite right here. See, God was very particular about the animal's and what sorts of animals could be sacrificed to him for various types of offerings. You can read about that in the first several chapters of the book of Leviticus, which, as my good friend always says, that's where Bible reading plans go to die. But here we have a burnt offering. And a burnt offering is one in which the entire animal is burnt up on the offer. Uh, Interesting historical note, there's no remains. The Greek word for it, this is totally irrelevant to the sermon, but it's, it's an Interesting fact, the Greek word for it, I know it's originally written in Hebrew, but the Greek word, the ancient Greek word is a derivative of the verb holocausto, where we get the term holocaust. It's immaterial to the sermon, but you can understand the the sacrificial connotations to that, that term. The problem, though, is that the cows are not an acceptable category for burnt offering. They could be used in a peace offering, but not a burnt offering. This is an illicit sacrifice. For a burnt offering, only a male was an option for the Israelites. And so by offering up these milk cows, cows by definition are female, um, they are doing something illicit. This is not a sacrifice that would be holy and pleasing to God. You have to imagine that if if these are farmers, they they would have had some bulls nearby to offer as a sacrifice if they were so inclined. In fact, it says they offered other sacrifices, so it seems like they had no lack of animals. Now, the author doesn't comment on this, but that's not unusual. The biblical authors uh, often don't comment on the mistakes that people in the Bible are making. Um, they're there's often an understanding, an assumption that the reader is familiar with the Old Testament law, is familiar with God's rules and laws and commands, so that when we see somebody doing something they ought not, 
We don't go, oh, that's a tacit endorsement. God's saying that's okay. No, that's a sort of a, a red flag. It's an exclamation point in the text for the reader to go, whoa, what are they doing? And that's sort of what's going on here. The, the author is giving us permission to kind of, oh, what's going on? It's a sign that things aren't quite right. And the author reminds us again of the golden offerings from Philistia, which is, which is in it. goes into a lot of detail. He's already told us about them. And so why are we being told about all the mice and all the golden tumors again? Except that they were receiving a lot of importance in this moment. The Israelites apparently set up both these and the ark on top of the stone. It might be that they aren't using the stone as an altar, but just as a place to display these objects. Whatever the case, it's kind of peculiar that the Philistines' completely unacceptable offering, because they're making images of things on earth, which is prohibited in the top of the Ten Commandments, They put these things on display for all to see. I don't know if there was a playbook in Israel for dealing with golden tumors, but I I imagine they might have taken a different course of action. They might have melted them down and, and used them for a different purpose. They might have ground them to dust like Moses did with the golden calf in the wilderness when they were worshiping false gods while he was on Mount Sinai. But we saw earlier in this book, at this point, the Israelites have become very much the same as the Philistines. They were just as much pagans as the Canaanites were. In any event, at this point, the five Philistine lords that we saw last week, they had followed the cart because they wanted to see what had happened to it. They've taken note of the fact that the ark did, in fact, return to Israel. And so they depart, which closes the first part of this episode. And after the departure, the Philistines, who had so recently been struck by God, after these Philistines who had experienced so much at God's hand, left God's wrath and turns on the Israelites. And the text tells us 70 men were struck down. If if you're reading another English translation, somewhat English Bibles say the number is 50,070. And just side note, there's some uncertainty about how big the number was for reasons not worth going into this morning. If the larger number is right, though, it would be telling us that Yahweh struck down more Israelites than the Philistines did in battle, which is sort of significant. But even 70 would have been a very large percentage of the population of the small border town, Beth Shemesh. That's the number most scholars think is probably accurate. And that would have been a heavy, heavy toll. And it may be because the same language is used that we're to understand that these Israelites were struck by the same disease that the Philistines had experienced. Why did God bring this on them? Well, the text says because they looked upon the ark. A better translation might be, and they looked in the ark. They looked in the ark. Remember, the ark was a box, and it contained things, three things or four things, depending on how you want to count them. Uh, It contained the staff of Aaron that had budded miraculously, to demonstrate that he alone was to be a priest for the Israelites. It contained a sample of the manna that the Israelites had eaten in the wilderness, eaten in the deserts. And it contained the two tablets of the Ten Commandments. 
And both looking on the ark and looking in the ark were prohibited. When the ark was traveling, certain Levites were supposed to cover it up so that no one accidentally saw it. The people of Beth Shemesh could maybe have been forgiven for looking at the ark as it surprised them being carried by cow cart across the hillside. But once they recognized what it was and setting up on a rock for full display of all, as if they had returned their trophy, was not what we should have expected, perhaps, from Levites. And if they did look into it, this would have obviously been a step further. But amazingly, our friends at Beth Shemesh don't take the opportunity to repent of their sins. God is punishing them. And instead, like the Philistines before them, they treat the ark like an unlucky charm. And they think that maybe they can just send it away to another land. And that's where the final piece of our story takes place. They go to Kiriath Yerim and give them the good news that the ark is back. They say, hey guys, good news, ark's back. You guys want it, right? Come take it. They don't say anything about the disease, nice guys. Rather, they simply suggest that the guys at Kiriath Yerim should come get it. And they do. And this is really weird. First of all, if they're, if they're going to send it away, why not back to Shiloh? That's where the ark came from earlier in our, our narrative. That's where the tabernacle had been set up. That's where uh, Eli's family had been serving as priests at Shiloh. We don't know, but a lot of scholars think that after the battle of chapter 4, Shiloh may have been ransacked and absolutely leveled and destroyed. In fact, current archaeological evidence, as best we can tell, suggests a complete destruction of the Shiloh site around this time in history. Other scholars have suggested that Kiriath Yarim was likely a place of worship. After all, its other name is Kiriath Baal. And so maybe this was a place of particular religious interest. That's perhaps the saddest possibility. But maybe on just a more pragmatic and basic level, the simplest explanation is that Kiriath Yarim was just the next town over. And they wanted the ark out of there. And it winds up at the home of some guy named Minadab, who we have never heard of before, and we never hear of after. And they made some dude named Eleazar the priest. And we don't know anything about him either. Never mind the fact that this isn't how Israelites were to get a new priest. And so it's in the end a strange sad tale. Strange as it might be, though, I think many modern people, certainly modern Americans, can relate to the key idea of this passage. The Israelites at Beth Shemesh have two basic responses to God that ring true. The first basic response is that they worship God the way they want to. America is a fairly secular society, or at least it's a fairly secularized society. What's weird about it is that within our secularized society, about 90% of Americans have some sort of belief in God. Now that drops to a little bit under 85% when you talk about the 18 to 29-year-old demographic of which many of us in this room are. But America is a very individualistic society. We like to do things our way. We like to think we have it figured out. 
or that I can figure it out on my own just fine, thank you. And in America, it's not uncommon for people who call themselves Christians but don't belong to a Christian church. Um, They call themselves a member of fill-in-the-blank religion, but they don't necessarily do any of the things that you would associate with that religion. And that's something that would have been nearly unthinkable in almost every other time and place in world history. And yet, if you try to take God away from Americans, we get really upset, don't we? We love God bless America. And I was, I, I'll be honest, I was, I was at the Browns game on uh, Veterans Day weekend, and I couldn't believe how many Browns fans could sing all the lyrics to uh, Lee Greenwood's classic hit, Proud to be an American, and saying, God bless the USA at the end with triumphant voices. I was, I was shocked, and yet I'm pretty sure most of those people weren't rushing to get to the game after church like I was. So you can't take God away from Americans, but dang it, you're not going to tell an American how to worship God. We've created more religious groups than probably any other nation on the face of the earth, except maybe India. They're, they're really good at creating a lot of religious groups too, but everybody has their own way in America. And if we don't like it, we find a new one to suit us better, or we just do it ourselves. But sooner or later, you run into a problem that God, if he's real, if he is the real deal, then he is a holy God. And God is personal, and that means if God is personal, he has preferences. He has preferences which stem from his holy and pure character. And we don't get to worship him just any way we want. We have to worship him the way he wants. Suppose, young man, you meet a new woman, you attempt to woo her by purchasing her flowers. You purchase her these incredible, intricate bouquets of flowers. You love flowers. You happen to be the strong, sensitive type. And you're convinced that it would be a romantic, genuine thing to do. But suppose the reality is she hates flowers. She's deathly allergic. And the first time you brought them, she, she genuinely appreciated the thought. She quickly threw them in a vase and downed a bottle of Claritin while you weren't looking. And the next time you brought them, she gave you a look that kind of said, oh, flowers, thanks. But you didn't notice because you were so infatuated and so on. At some point, you don't notice that she doesn't like flowers. At some point, that keeps continuing that you don't notice You never ask her what she actually likes. The relationship is probably going to go south. Now, of course, with God, it's a little different. We can't woo God. We'll talk about that in a minute. But there's something a little arrogant about doing something you like and you enjoy for someone else and expecting them to get on with what makes you happy. That takes some hubris, doesn't it? And yeah, that's kind of how we Americans oftentimes treat religion and God. And that's what the Israelites did, showcasing the ark, showcasing these golden images, looking into the ark, offering improper but convenient sacrifices. If you attempt to worship God your way, you might eventually find yourself asking the same rhetorical questions that the Israelites did at Beth Shemesh, which is the second response that might ring true. They asked themselves, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? 
I can remember when I was young, um, I think it was about 12 years old, I was standing in the shower, undoubtedly taking far too long, pondering God and heaven and eternal life, because I was that kid. Um, and maybe that makes me strange or strangely normal. I don't, I don't know, but it's what happened. And I started thinking about a holy God. I don't think I had that category yet, but I did grow up going to church, at least occasionally, and, and I had this idea in my head that God was perfect and good and all that. And I had an idea that I had to measure up to it if I wanted to go to heaven when I die. And I, and I can remember wondering if there was any way to know if I was good enough to get into heaven. And that thought kind of gave me this moment of quiet discomfort, that sort of sinking feeling, that hollow gulp in your chest. I resolved it. I, I, I studied myself that, you know, no one can really know that. So there was no sense worrying about it, and I, and I pushed it out of my head. Most of our lives are lived uh, like mine was before I got in the shower that day and, and after I got out of the shower that day, blissfully unaware of a holy God. I think that's how we, we typically try to carry on our lives. But, but sometimes I think we're forced into an encounter with him. Perhaps it's just a stray thought like my shower time speculation that leads you to this, this gut awareness of the God of all creation, or perhaps it's a horrible tragedy like the Israelites experienced at Beth Shemesh. And in that moment, you might catch a quick glimpse of your unworthiness. And that's really the, the nature of, of having a holy God. It means that in many ways, he is holy other, holy with a a W-H-O-L-L-Y. He is holy other. In his beauty, he is holy other than me. In his moral purity, he is holy other than me. In his goodness, he is holy other than me. And sometimes we see our best. We see ourselves best. Not in a mirror, that's where we'd first go, right? If I want to fix my hair, I look in the mirror. But we oftentimes see the, ourselves most clearly not in a mirror, but in the relief of our superiors. When we, we see someone who's been doing the same job as us for 20 years longer than us, we suddenly see how far we have to go. You know, I don't know how good a preacher I am by listening to my own sermons so much as I do by hearing them in comparison to greater preachers. Then my weakness and my faults are laid bare across the air that the sound waves travel. You know, a computer coder doesn't know how good a coder she is by looking at her own code, but she sees a very clear picture when she sees another developer accomplish the same task with half the lines. She realizes, oh, I've got a long way to go. It's one thing to scoop ground balls in your backyard, and it's another to do it next to Frankie Lindor at, at Progressive Field. The truth is, the truth is, though, many of us, when we get those little glimpses, don't appreciate them. They're the hard truths that we don't like to see about ourselves. It's easier to only look in the mirror and wonder if I look a little better or a little bit worse than I did yesterday. I can kind of swallow that, right? But when we look at greatness, it's, there's a temptation 
not to really reflect on the gulf between me and that greatness, the distance between me and that greatness, but to ignore that great divide, to shove it out of our minds. So the Israelites figured out of sight, out of mind, and removed God from their presence by sending the ark to Kiriath-Yarim. And 12-year-old me just mentally bludgeoned the thought out of my head because it was too uncomfortable. And I don't think I'm strange in that regard. I suspect you've had, or will have at some point, these fleeting glimpses into the holiness and greatness of God. And you'll have this inkling that you just don't measure up. And like the Israelites, you cannot stand before the Lord, this holy God. And maybe like me and like many others before and after me, you'll suppress that thought as hard as you can because the ramifications of that thought are too great. Ironically, though, the Israelites were, as we've said over and over, theoretically the people of God. And that's a reminder that your external affiliation with the right group doesn't save you from a holy God. You could grow up Muslim, you could grow up Hindu, you could grow up even in a Christian church, but that external affiliation won't put you in the right. And so in this passage, we see that there is a general human impulse to reject God as he has revealed himself. And we can reject him by worshiping him according to our whims and our preferences, either physically, like the Israelites did, or emotionally and spiritually. That's the other, other option. We can reject him by worshiping him according to our whims, or we can worship him, or excuse me, we can reject him by trying to send him away. In other words, we ignore him. Pro tip to the young lovers with the flowers, ignoring the target of your affections doesn't work very well either. Just 13-year-old boys need to know that. Um, so if you want to know the Christian God, let's bring this home here, the real God, you have to reject these twin impulses. On, on one hand, you can't ignore this uncomfortable chasm, this, this enormity of the divide between you and God. As the Apostle Paul puts it, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fall short. We come to the end of our running, the end of our pursuit, and find that the finish line is much, much further away than we ever dared dream. And on the other hand, we can't think that we can placate God by, by coming to him on our own terms. He's holy. And, and so we have to come to him on his terms, by his standards. Okay, so, so well, what's the standard? Well, if you're like me, when I was dreaming in the shower, or like a lot of Americans, I think one way that we help ourselves solve this riddle is that we, we lower the bar on God's expectations. I think we, we oftentimes have a sense that we don't measure up to God's bar, and so we draw a new line, just a little bit more within reach. And we think, if I can reach that bar, maybe that bar is, I'm, I'm better than my sister. I'm, I'm better than my, my neighbor. I'm, I'm better than those crazy Christians I see on TV. 
So what do you have to do? You go to church, you help the poor, you serve some meals, you donate some time. Make sure we put into the, the Salvation Army kettle. And at least once a week, maybe you give a little something to that guy who stops you down the street for some change every time you're on your way to work. Is, is that it? What, what do we have to do? Well, all those things can be very good. But the reality is, is God's standard is so much higher because it's moral perfection. It's perfect actions. Yeah, that's part of it. But it's also perfect words. It's also perfect thoughts. Uh, go that one step further. It's perfect intentions. You know how it is that you're, you're more likely to leave a larger tip on the table when you're eating with friends and the restaurant only takes cash than you are if you're eating by yourself and you're paying with credit card. Okay, you can admit it. Because there's just a little bit, there's a little bit of yourself that just wants to impress the others at the table, or at least don't give them the impression that you're cheap, right? Our intentions are conflicted, aren't they? And similarly, our intentions toward God and the other moral activities that we engage in are often conflicted as well. So we, we do some things that have some good motives, but we also usually have some bad motives mixed in there. And God's standard is moral perfection even in our intentions. Jesus says that what comes out of the heart is our most inward being is what defiles a person. And so if our, even our intentions for our actions and our words and our thoughts aren't pure, then we are defiled. We're impure before a holy God. So how do you obtain to such a, a standard of perfection? How can you stand before this Lord, this holy God? And the good news is, the Christian message is that Jesus attained that standard of perfection for you. He was sinless. His actions, his words, his thoughts, and even the deepest intentions of his heart were morally perfect at every moment. He met God's righteous standards and he picks up the tab for sinners who can't pay. But how do you get in on that? One word, in one word, repent. It's the one thing that the Israelites should have done at Beth Shemesh. Losing the Ark of the Covenant in battle to the Philistines, that alone should have moved them to national mourning and national repentance that, oh my gosh, we have gone so far astray of our God that he's abandoned us. It didn't. When they saw God's wrath break out against their neighbors at Beth Shemesh, it should have moved them to repentance. It didn't. Repentance is turning around. It's, a, it's admitting that God is right, I'm wrong, and as a result, making the requisite change. It goes hand in hand with faith. Because if we trust who God is and, and what God has said, then we will change our lives to be ordered around him rather than ourselves. Unfortunately, the Israelites didn't make that decision here, and it cost them. But I believe their choice is recorded here for our benefit, that we might not make the same mistake that they made. This morning, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's the meal that that 
sacrificial lamb, that Jesus who was sinless, who offered himself in the place of sinners, celebrated with his closest followers. As a commemoration, a celebration, and a reminder of the death that he died so that sinners might not have to die. Not spiritually, not eternally, not apart from God in hell. We celebrate that meal. We celebrate that Jesus died and he's coming again to judge. For the Christians among us, maybe that's most of us here, I think there's still a reminder. First, if this could be true of the Israelites, the supposed people of God, might it be true of us? Are we careful that we haven't deluded ourselves into thinking that we are followers of Christ because of our external affiliation? Because we grew up in the church, because we, we got married in the church, because we, we did a Bible study, because we prayed a prayer once upon a time. Your external affiliations will never replace faith and repentance for Jesus Christ. Moreover, even if we are Christians, I think we can sometimes fall into the same trap. We, we might be saved and, and, and Christ will hold us fast and, and he will inevitably pull us back and that's wonderful and that's good, but we still can be tempted to worship God the way we want to worship God and not the way he desires to be worshipped. We can be tempted when we see our own sins and we see our own wickedness and we know that the Spirit is pulling us toward holiness and pulling us toward sanctification, yet just shove the thought out because we want to keep living our lives the way we want to. And so that temptation is still there for us Christians. Give it up. Give it up. Repent again. Repentance is not a one-time deal for Christians. Repentance is the life of Christians. And as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, let us renew our commitment to a repentant life this morning. And if you've never done that, I invite you to do what the Israelites didn't do at Beth Shemesh. And that's turn back to a holy God. Who can stand before the Lord, such a holy God? Well, Jesus can. And all those who've been caught up into Jesus can stand with him. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are sinners who have too often made our worship about ourselves and not about you. We have worshipped you after our own heart, after our own desires, after our own conveniences, offering whatever it is that seems like it would be superficially religious and good to you, but not giving you what it is you have absolutely demanded. We confess that when we have seen our own sinfulness, we have oftentimes shoved you out of our lives and out of our minds in an attempt to rid ourselves of that fear. Forgive us for these sins. Draw us back near to you. Let us worship in spirit and truth, even as our Lord and Savior promised is the only way that is acceptable. Oh God, I pray for those who do not know, yet know you, and especially those who might be here, who might have deluded themselves into believing they know you, but their hearts truly are far from you. May your gospel grace convict them, even this morning, of their need of a master, a Lord, as much as a Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.